Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 will be our sermon text for this morning. We're continuing in our series in the book of Genesis. Before I read that for us, let's pray together. Our Father, we do come. Uh, We come to you. We come because we need you. We need to hear your voice. We need you to speak into our lives. We need you to correct the lies that we believe. We need you to speak truth into our hearts. We need you to transform us by your Spirit using your Word and conform us to the image of Jesus that we would be more and more like him. Father, we pray that you would continue that work in our hearts this morning by your Spirit through your Word to the glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our sermon text is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So beginning in the first verse. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Our sin really is that bad, but God's grace is greater. This is the kind of text uh, about which you might be tempted to beat around the bush uh, to try to make it palatable to the average human heart, but here, here is the point of this text. Our sin really is that bad, but God's grace is greater. It's also one of those texts where you might uh, lose the forest for the trees. There, there are a number of difficulties in the text, either of interpretation or theology. In these eight verses, there are about four difficulties. And so again, we might get caught up in the interpretive and theological nuances and miss the point of the text. And so here's the point. Our sin really is that bad, but God's grace is greater. We will get into the weeds, but I want us to keep that in mind as we move along. And so to that end, we're going to look at uh, three things, that the depth of our depravity, the depth of God's grief, and the depth of God's grace. First, the depth of our depravity. Uh, In in 2012, uh, a Scientific American article was titled, Scientists Probe Human Nature and Discover We are good after all. Of course, the article goes on to cite data that doesn't prove human goodness, but our willingness to cooperate with others, which is not quite the same thing. 
And it ends with a sentence that includes the statement, this evidence does not definitely solve the puzzle of human nature. Uh, but I take, uh, what I take from the title is this, we, we want evidence proving our goodness. And I think that's because we know that we are in the wrong and we're trying to get in the right. Or as Black Widow said in the Avengers, I've got red in my ledger and we would all like to wipe it out. Uh, one way of doing that is explaining it away. Uh, actually, I'm not so bad after all. And yet, when we turn to the book of Genesis, we find evidence to the contrary. In fact, our sin is really worse than we think. Genesis 6 begins like this in, in the first two verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, there are immediately a couple of questions we have to answer here, uh, specifically, uh, who are the sons of God, and who are the daughters of man, and why is this so bad? And the first thing to say, again, so as not to lose the forest for the trees, is this. The point here is the increasing degradation of humanity. Something bad is going on here, which causes God to respond in judgment and regret and grief in verses 3, 6, and 7. So, so what is that bad thing? Well, there are, are at least three options that uh, various commentators give, uh, all of which are plausible, uh, all of which are, are even historical options that have been given, uh, and yet all of which have difficulties as well. And so whatever conclusion we come to, we, we ultimately must hold it loosely. Uh, option one is that the sons of God are men from the line of Seth, and the daughters of man are women from the line of Cain. Uh, the, the problem then that's being put forward is actually intermarriage of the godly line with the ungodly, which in Genesis threatens the coming of the godly seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so God's promise is being put at risk. Uh, in favor of this interpretation is actually the genealogy in Genesis 5. Uh, it, leading up to this, uh, it, it, it is, the way it's set up is such that Adam is presented as God's son and Seth is Adam's son, so his godly line are the sons of God. If that seems odd to you, just consider Luke's genealogy in uh, genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, which ends in Luke 3.38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so Seth's line, in contrast to Cain's, is the godly line, pictured as the children of God. The Israelites later are called the God's children. Uh, one example is in Deuteronomy 14.1, uh, which says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. And the New Testament takes, well, Cain as the, as the paradigm for the children of the devil and Abel as the paradigm for the children of God in 1 John 3. And of course, uh, that's a role which Seth picks up after Abel's death. And uh, intermarriage with ungodly nations was something which threatens Israel's existence throughout the Old Testament. If they intermarry with the nations, their faithfulness to Yahweh is threatened there is the, the danger of being led astray, a danger which becomes a reality at many points throughout the story, most famously with Solomon, uh, who marries many foreign wives who lead him into idolatry and false worship. And so it could be that the sons of God are the children of Seth and the, the daughters of man are the, the women in Cain's line and intermarriage is the problem here. 
Now, the objections to this view are twofold. One is that the, the daughters mentioned up to this point have been in Seth's line, not Cain's. Uh, you remember each entry in the genealogy of Seth records, and he had other sons and daughters. Uh, this uh, maybe is not as solid an objection, though, as some claim it to be. Cain's genealogy, maybe you remember in chapter 4, Cain's genealogy actually does end with a daughter named Naamah, which means pleasant. Here was a beautiful daughter of Cain. And some actually speculate that the way these genealogies are put next to one another in chapter 4 and 5 looks like an ancient Near Eastern marriage contract and that Naamah, daughter of Lamech, son of Cain, actually is married to Noah, son of Lamech, son of Seth, which is an interesting speculation that we'll come back to at a later time. But if it were true, that would mean Noah himself was an example of this intermarriage. The other objection to this view, though, is that the phrase sons of God is not normally used in this way, at least not often. So that brings us to the second option. This is the most popular option uh, presently and, and maybe even historically, and that is that the sons of God refer to spiritual beings. Uh, this is the way the phrase sons of God is used in the book of Job. Job chapter 1 verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now if this is the case, what we have here is not a mixture of the godly and the ungodly line, but a mixture of races, human and angelic. And uh, you know, God stressed in the Old Testament not to crossbreed animals or even wear clothing made of two different materials. So this would have been considered kind of a monstrous thing. And this view actually has a lot going for it. Uh, it, it it's a common usage of the phrase sons of God. It's alluded to in uh, Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You may remember that angels who appear as human beings could have intercourse with other human beings. So it's plausible in that sense. And many believe that this is actually the interpretation taken by Peter in 2 Peter 2 and by Jude in verses 6 and 7. In those places, if you look at 2 Peter and Jude, uh, in those places, angels are referred to as sinning in the days of Noah, leaving their proper dwelling and being punished for it. And in both cases, in 2 Peter and Jude, the writer immediately goes on to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. And some would say that the connection there is that both, uh, both involve sexual sin as the heart of the problem. Now, the, the problem with this view, uh, the, the problem is not that it's hard to believe, uh, because we believe that Scripture is God's Word. Uh, it, we need to be ready to believe whatever Scripture tells us. The problem with this view is actually whatever this sin is in verse 2, God punishes humanity for it and not the angels, at least not here. It's a human sin, and so human beings are the ones held responsible for it. So then that brings us to the third option. Uh, the option three is that the sons of God are actually human earthly rulers. Uh, this option has a couple of things going for it. Uh, first, sometimes human ru rulers are referred to in this way. That's true of Israel's kings in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. But it's also true of the rulers of the nations, uh, earlier, uh, Scott read Psalm 82 for us, which says, In the midst of the gods, God holds judgment. And then he calls out earthly rulers for judging unjustly and not protecting the weak and needy. 
And he says to them in verses 6 and 7, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. That is, uh, though they have such a high position in this life, they are in the end nothing but mortal men, and they will be destroyed just the same. And so the phrase sons of God can refer to earthly rulers, and earthly rulers in the ancient world, of course, did at times take any women they chose. Uh, We see this in Genesis chapter 12, when Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem, threatening the promised seed again. Or even when King David takes Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, earthly rulers taking any women they chose. Now, the, the only additional view to these three is some combination of them, uh, kings in Seth's line or demon-possessed kings in Cain's line. Uh, whichever view we come down on, the point is this, the race of humanity is becoming more and more corrupt, whether through the intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain or some kind of intermarriage with fallen spiritual beings or simply godless kings abusing their authority. Whichever was the case, it wasn't good. These sons of God were replaying Eden. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive. The word is good, the same word used in Genesis 1 and 3. And they took them as their wives. Saw, good, took. That's exactly what Eve did with the fruit. She saw that it was good for food and she took it. Now, the result of these marriages is possibly the Nephilim in verse 4. And what they are really depends on how you take verse 2, doesn't it? Uh, The Nephilim means fallen ones. Uh, So these are are great warriors, mighty men of old, verse 4 says. Later there were Nephilim in the days of Moses. The spies saw them in the land, we're told. And they said, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers in light of them, Numbers 13.33. Ezekiel refers to men who will fall, the same root word, who do not lie with the mighty in Ezekiel 32, and he seems to be echoing this passage using the two phrases, to fall and mighty men next to one another. And and it's entirely possible that um, the phrase Nephilim was a kind of honorific title for great fallen warriors. Uh, It would make a great movie title, wouldn't it? The Fallen. And uh, it, it would refer to mighty men, men of renown, who in the end nevertheless fell in battle. And the picture is perhaps of great kings marrying many wives, raising up their sons as great warriors who then give their lives for glory in battle. And yet all of this, all of this is just backdrop for what God saw. In Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. But in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord sees the wickedness of man. Uh, Verse 5 has about the most complete description of human depravity anywhere in the Bible. It is both external and internal. It is comprehensive and complete and continual. Uh, It's external because the wickedness of man is great in the earth. And it's internal because it begins in the intentions and thoughts of the human heart. As we've seen recently, Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of man comes evil. But it's not just some thoughts, and intentions, but every single one, according to verse 5. And the evil of man's heart is comprehensive, encompassing every one of his thoughts. And it's not just that every thought is partially evil. The evil, uh, God sees that human thoughts are only evil. The evil is complete. And it's not just that every thought is only evil some of the time, but that evil is continual. Every intention of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
You cannot get a more comprehensive statement than that. Of course, that statement brings up a whole host of other questions, doesn't it? Uh, The writer seems to be saying that we are as bad as we could possibly be. Is that really true? That's actually not the doctrine of total depravity, by the way. Uh, The Calvinist doctrine of total depravity is that no part of humanity is untouched by sin. We've been touched by sin in our totality, but without the idea that any part is as bad as it could be. We could be worse, according to Calvinism. Uh, But why could we be worse? I think the answer, in light of Genesis 6-5, is that God, by his common grace, holds us back from being all that we would otherwise be by nature. See, with the advent of sin, the the human heart has become completely and totally and utterly corrupt. Any sign of human goodness, and, and there are many, but any sign of human goodness is the result of God's grace restraining sin in the lives of his creatures, whether believers or unbelievers. And so we praise God for for every kind word, every selfless deed. It is his hand at work in that person's life. In the unbeliever, it's, it's the mere restraint of sin, but in the believer, it is God sanctifying and transforming them by his grace. So by nature, every intention of the thoughts of our hearts would be only evil all the time were it not for the grace of God at work within us. How does that feel? And how does that strike you? Maybe it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. And yet we know uh, human beings are capable of horrible things. Uh, We we know that human beings are capable of of rape and murder and genocide and systemic oppression and racism. And this just explains that by saying something is wrong with the human heart. Something has gone terribly wrong. Some don't want to admit that things are this bad, but that is like a cancer patient not wanting to admit their diagnosis. We must acknowledge the sickness before we will accept the cure. And quite frankly, the the stuff of the daily news should clue us in something is terribly wrong. And yet, uh, it's going to get worse in the next point before it gets better. So first, that's the depth of our depravity. Uh, Second, the depth of God's grief. What does God think about our sin? Some would say that God doesn't really think about sin, that that it's our hang-up, not his, they would suggest. Others would skip straight to forgiveness. That's what God does, after all. He forgives. And, of course, I I believe in a God of forgiveness. Uh, We're going to get there. Uh, But while the Bible does not say less than that, it does say more than forgiveness. You can't leave out God's forgiveness when it comes to God's relationship to sin, but that's not all you need to say either. If verse 5 is the most complete statement on human sin in Scripture, verses 6 and 7 are the most stark statement on God's feelings about sin. Verses 6 and 7 say this, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Of course, the the, the theological question that this brings up right away, perhaps to your mind, is can God regret his own actions? I mean, would that show some inconsistency in God? If God is sorry for creating man, does that mean God made a mistake? 
Now, some verses uh, definitively weigh in on this, don't they? Take Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, for example, which says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God doesn't change his mind, period. Or take 1 Samuel 15, 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, the same word for regret is used in Genesis 6 and 1 Samuel 15. Genesis 6, 6 says, the Lord regretted. And 1 Samuel 15 says, the glory of Israel will not have regret. Now, some people would just throw up their hands at this point and say the Bible is full of contradictions, the end. And yet that would be hasty. Uh, 1 Samuel 15 is actually a really interesting passage. 1 Samuel 15, 11 in 1 Samuel 15, 11, God says, I regret that I have made Saul. And then in verse 29, we're told the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then verse 35 says, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now you've got two possibilities. Either the writer of 1 Samuel was a complete idiot and didn't see the apparent contradiction, or... And if you know the book of 1 Samuel, you know that this is the case. He, had, he was an incredibly careful writer who chose words very intentionally, and he knew what he was doing. And so why say the Lord regretted and the Lord will not have regret in the same chapter? Uh, verse 11 and 35 say that God regretted making Saul king, and verse 29 says God will not change or regret his decree against Saul to take away his kingship. And so how do we put those together? Uh, well, listen to this for a minute and, uh, and, and hear me out. The Lord sometimes changes his mind because his mind never changes. I, I know how that sounds. <laughs> but just listen. God's attitude toward Saul changed because God's goodness and plan did not. God's attitude toward us will always reflect his unchanging character and his unchanging plan in relation to the changing circumstances of life. Right? When God's unchanging goodness comes into contact with goodness, he delights in it. When God's goodness comes into contact with oppression, he hates it. And so when humanity goes wrong, of course God hates it. Of course he is grieved because God's love, which does not change, right, hates the way humanity has gone. When you love something, you grieve when it is harmed and broken and you take actions to protect that which you love. If God wasn't upset that humanity had gone wrong, it would mean that he ceased to love the world that he made. That would be a true change in God's character. Now, the word regret here means to suffer grief over something. God suffers grief over his creation gone wrong because his love for his good world does not change. When you grieve over someone's downfall, it shows the depth of your love for that person. In fact, verse 6 says, uh, human sin grieved God to his heart. Now, that word grief is used uh, in a number of places. For example, when Jacob's sons hear that their sister Dinah was raped. The ESV says they were indignant, but it's the same word here. They were grieved. 
David grieved when his rebellious son Absalom was killed in battle. He was grieved over the loss of his son. Isaiah 54 verse 6 says a wife grieves when she is abandoned by her husband. And so this is the grief of God over sin, the the indignation when someone is abused, the mourning when a child is lost, the sadness when a spouse leaves. Our sin grieves the heart of God. It grieves him because he loves his world and he hates to see it destroyed by sin. God grieves over human sin because his purpose for the world does not change. He wants his goodness and his glory to be known and tasted in all the earth. But human sin leaves a bad taste in all of our mouths. As a result of this grief, God says in 6.3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now again, we have an interpretive question that we have to answer here, which is what is the 120 years? Uh, it, It could be one of two things. On the one hand, it could be God is limiting the age of men and women to 120 years. Now, now some object to this interpretation because people continue to live more than 120 years after this point. Noah himself lives to be 950 years old. But the age limit could be instituted gradually, which is actually what happens after the flood. After the flood, we see a dramatic and steady decline in people's ages. After that point, the upper limit hovers around 120. Moses lives to 120. Aaron, his brother, lives to 123. But even to this day, 120 is an extremely old age. In fact, the oldest recorded person died in 1997 at 122. Now, given the Bible's tendency to use round numbers, uh, 120 would be three generations of 40 years apiece, uh, it seems that this 120-year limit is in place to this day. Uh, But there's another way of understanding this number, and that is as a period of grace leading up to the flood. God is setting the day of judgment and giving humanity time to repent until that day. In which case, this 120, while setting the day of judgment, is also the first sign of grace in this passage. Judgment would come when the depth of our sin was met by the depth of God's grief, the result would be God's just judgment. But there was a time of grace up until that point. Now, now there are people who uh, believe that judgment is not coming either because God is just too nice for such a thing or because there's no God at all. And they need to know, right? We need to know that God's judgment is coming. It is real and it's on its way. Second Peter says the only reason judgment has not come already is because God is being patient with us. He's giving us time to repent. But judgment is coming. As sure as judgment came in the days of Noah, so it will come in our day. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 38 to 39, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. At some point, Jesus says, he will return. Judgment will come, and it will come at a time that we do not expect. God is grieved by human sin and the destruction that it brings. And God will hold us accountable. Don't think that just because God hasn't judged that he won't judge or that there is no judge. Rather, God is giving us time, time to repent, time to turn to him, seek his forgiveness. But even the 120 years before the flood, if that is how we should understand those words, 
uh, show us, they show us that there is grace, but they also uh, point us forward to something more, which brings us to our final point. So that's the depth of our depravity on the one hand, the depth of God's grief on the other, and finally, the depth of God's grace. Just as there are some who believe that there is no judgment, so there are others who believe that there's no way out, at least not for them. Some people believe that their sin is so bad that there's just no opportunity or uh, possibility of forgiveness. And while the first seven verses of this text would seem to be going in one clear, unstoppable direction, uh, verse 8 is kind of the the post-credit scene for this section that prepares us for what is to come, and it brings in a bit of a plot twist in verse 8. It says, but Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we're going to read in future weeks that Noah was more righteous than any other in his generation. But Noah was a sinner too. And the first thing we read about him is not how righteous he was. The first thing we read is about God's grace. Noah found favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is what we need. We need to find grace in our Father's eyes. We need the freely forgiven favor of our Father in heaven. And and what we will see as we move on in the the Noah story is that our Father's favor is the only thing that saves humanity from complete annihilation. Humanity was forfeited, uh, has forfeited any verdict before the divine justice, but guilty and deserving of damnation. But God freely bestows his undeserved favor, his grace. Of course, Noah is only a picture He's only a foreshadow of a greater Savior to come. Noah will come through the flood waters, but Jesus will come through the flood of God's wrath. Jesus came more righteous than Noah, perfect in every way, and yet he comes to bear our depravity, to take our sin. God hates sin, but he he doesn't stand off because of it. By his grace, he steps into the world to bear the sin of the world. Yes, God grieves human sin. He knows it deserves utter destruction, but instead of pouring out that destruction on mankind, God takes takes that destruction upon himself at the cross. We hear of God's wrath about sin, his punishment for sin, and we think, that's so out of proportion, right? That's so overblown. But here is the evidence that this is not so. God sends his son to bear that punishment, Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, let's do that, right? Let's do plan B. But apparently there is no other way, no plan B. God's justice must be satisfied. So God sends a substitute, Jesus, who willingly takes our punishment in our place. How it must have grieved the heart of God to pour out his judgment on his son, but he did it for our sake. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation, the the wrath-bearing substitute for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the, the depth of God's grace, that despite what we deserve, he loves us and sends his son to take what we deserve upon himself. That leaves us free in Christ to receive God's favor, his forgiveness, his love, his grace, his kindness. 
Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and you can too, whoever you are, right, no matter how bad your sin, no matter what you have done, right now you can turn from sin, look to Jesus, and find God's forgiveness and favor in him. What's the application of a passage like this? What are we to do in light of its teaching? Well, there are at least three implications. There are certainly more that we could come up with, but the three that I'm thinking of are very simple, and they are repent and believe and worship. First, repent. See your sin for what it is. Own it as your own without excuse. Confess it to God. Ask for forgiveness. Turn from it in his power to sin no more. Repent. Second, believe. All of that can only be done with our eyes on Jesus, right? He has taken away your sin. The Father offers forgiveness in him. He gives you power to live a new life in his spirit. Look to Jesus, believe in him, trust in him, rest in him. Repent and believe. And third, worship, right? To, to worship here means to, to marvel, to wonder, to be awestruck by the grace of God, that God would be so grieved over our sin and yet take the punishment upon himself rather than pour it out on us is sheer grace, in the days of Noah, they faced judgment and anticipation of things to come. There is a judgment day coming. But like Noah, the Father has shown us grace in Jesus. And so Paul breaks out in worship in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul does this not once, but again and again in his letters as he meditates on the grace of God. Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 1 Timothy 1, 16 to 17, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul is repeatedly caught up in praise as he reflects on the patient, forgiving, transforming grace of God. And this should be our response as well, to marvel at all that God has done in Christ for those who believe. Is your heart struck by the grace of God in Christ? If, there, if not, there is something you can do, right, which is to pray. Uh, pray for God to bowl you over with his grace, that your heart would marvel at the wonders of the gospel and would find joy in the free and forgiving favor of your Father. Now, I, I, want, to, I want to give you a minute to pray about this very thing. Uh, I want to give you a minute to pray that your heart would be bowled over by grace, to pray that you would repent of sin and believe in Jesus, and to pray that you would worship God with your whole heart. I'm going to give you a minute to pray those things, and then I will close us in just a moment. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace found in your son, Jesus. We do pray that you would grant us repentance of sin daily, that you would grant us faith in Jesus daily, that you would grant us uh, hearts that see you in all of your glory, that worship you and marvel at you and live for you in a way that brings you glory and honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.